Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, we start with international students now. Around 900,000 international students in Canada this year. Do the math on it. That's about 2% of Canada's entire population. There's no cap on the maximum number of international students allowed into the country. International students bring a ton of money here. Have we become overly reliant on international students to run and fund our education system? Got Jesse Nicoy standing by, BC Federation of Students. First, have a listen to the federal housing minister here, Sean Fraser. He was asked about international students' impact on housing. Here's what he had to say. The international student program makes extraordinary uh, economic and social contributions to Canada. It contributes tens of billions of dollars uh, to our GDP annually. Uh, But what we've seen recently is there's been such rapid growth, given that the program is typically uncapped, that certain communities are having uh, difficulties managing with the population growth that it's attracted. Okay, so a ton of money here. You heard him say that. Are we overly reliant on international student funding here to run our education system? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jesse Nicoy. Jesse is the Secretary-Treasurer of the BC Federation of Students. Jesse, thank you for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing it. So you've got a brand new report out on this issue here right now. What are your concerns here? So our concerns right now are the fact that um, institutions are starting to overly rely on um, international students for their funding. Um, We've seen that happen in the past few years, especially when it happened over the Christmas of last year. Emily Carr Students Union, Emily Carr University actually had a 30% increase in their um, international student tuition, and that was for incoming students in the fall. So that amounted to an extra $5,000. And for the question as to why that happened, the institution said they were balancing their budget. Oh, I wanted more money to balance the books. How much do international students pay in tuition? They pay a lot more than like local students, right? Yes. So according to Statistics Canada, international students pay 426% more than domestic students. So the wow. figures right now are an average of $32,909 as opposed to domestic students who have, who have about $6,000 every year. Okay, how much of this money, but that's a ton of money here, and we're talking billions of dollars overall here across the country. How much of, when, when you take a look at the, the financing of our post-secondary institutions now, how much of the budget is made up by, the, you know, this tuition from international students? So looking at the numbers, we have different institutions that have theirs, but when we came together, we realized that some institutions actually have Almost half of their budgets made up of um, international student tuition. Um, a case of that is with um, Thompson Rivers University. Um, 32% of their budget is about international student tuition, and the operating grant from the government is only 36%. So they're just 4% shy of making equal amounts on that side. And that's just tuition before even ancillary or user fees even come in. Okay, so your concern now is what, that we're overly reliant on this funding. So how how do we fix that? You think the government should spend more on education, right? Um, 
What we want to see is funding for the institutions so they don't have to rely on international students. There's two different ways that could be done is by first giving them the money and also putting a cap on international student tuition. Because right now there's no cap on international student tuition. So if a school wants to increase tuition by 40, 50 percent, they have the liberty to do so. And there's no consequences for that. There's a cap in place for domestic students, but what we want to see is a cap for international students as well. So at least they have some sort of predictability and then the schools don't have to rely on them, but the funding is necessary because they're underfunded and that's what's causing them to rely on international students. Do you think there should be a cap on the actual number of students coming into the country? Like right now, 900,000 this year. Boy, that's a lot. And that is uncapped, as you heard the minister say in that clip we played there. Do you think there are too many international students coming in? Um, international students do make a huge part of the economy and they are an essential part of Canadian economy as we are an immigration system. We rely on these numbers. So what needs to be done is the institutions being held accountable for providing the supports that they need for the students. If you're bringing in these students, you should provide the housing, you should provide the supports, you should provide the services that they need so that they will integrate into the system. Because right now, BC looks to is looking to bring more students in because they project to have over a million job openings in the next 10 years. If yeah. students are an essential part of that, the supports needed for them should be made available and that should be done by the institutions. Speaking to Jesse Nicoy, BC Federation of Students. Let me play a clip here for you, Jesse. This is the Federal Immigration Minister, Mark Miller, talking about international students and especially the stresses on housing that you just mentioned. Let's listen. International students are a credit to this country, Mr. Speaker. They are the future of this country, and they are an asset that is very lucrative, and we cannot let them let them down. Clearly, we need to work with provinces to make sure that they have proper housing. Oh, lu- very lucrative there, as he described it. That's probably, you know, just basically saying, like, hey, we need this money. This is yeah. very lucrative here. But then he also talked about the housing. What are you seeing in terms of, in terms of housing? Like, when, when these kids come into Canada, these students come here, do they got a place to live? For most students, they don't because um, the schools also have limited housing numbers. And then that leads to a stress on what's happening in the community. And right now, the housing crisis is not just limited to students. It's everyone's feeling it because affordability crisis, the economy is not going well. And what needs to be done is the the institutions need to provide the housing for them. But that's not happening right now. So what needs to be done by these um by the government is to give the money to these schools to provide the housing for these students. Students are struggling every day because international students come in and they don't have the credible, um, the necessary requirements. I don't have a credit score. I don't have enough references. And that's the issues most international students face when they come in. And what institutions need to do is find ways to provide for these students when they come in. Okay, so we're talking big money here, Jesse. So how much money? Let's go over that a little bit again here, because you're saying that the government should put more money on the table. Instead of relying on international students' tuition, the government should be doing more direct funding of colleges and universities, right? So how much more money? Um, Right now, I believe last year, there was a funding review that was started um, that was supposed to expose or actually reveal how much underfunding is happening in the system. Um, We're still waiting for that, and we hope to see something come out soon. But we are hoping that institutions get the proper funding that they can get based on that results of that review. Okay, and looking at your report, you're looking for an additional $500 a year 
into the system, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Jesse, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the housing crisis now. We talk about this a lot on the show. Buying a home in Metro Vancouver, impossible for a lot of people now. That dream has just vanished for a lot for a lot of other people. Renting, the only option. But that's become unaffordable, too, in many cases. Rents are soaring across Metro. We have the highest rents in the country. What is the answer here now? Now, this was a key issue this week at the annual gathering of local politicians, the Union of BC Municipalities. This is the largest gathering of local municipal politicians and leaders every single year. You get the entire provincial cabinet, the premier speaking down there today. You get the official opposition, federal MPs. Everybody is there. And everyone's been talking about housing. Let's check in with Dan Fomano now, city columnist at the Vancouver Sun. He's been following this. I recommend his recent column on this. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk housing here. You wrote a great column on this this week in the Sun. Uh, this is what a hot topic down there, right? Everyone's talking about this here. Oh, definitely. I mean, that was one of the, as, as you say, it was the Union of BC Municipalities Convention this week. So you have people not just from the province's big cities, but from rural areas, small towns, villages, electoral districts. Um, and that was something that was apparent at this housing town hall was that these, you know, housing challenges are not just, you know, the west side of Vancouver or the expensive areas of Victoria. It's really something that different municipalities and different parts of the province are grappling with. Uh, everyone seems to be struggling with different kinds of housing troubles right now. Yeah, let's let's talk about some of those, Dan. So we talked in the earlier on the show today about Canada's soaring population. What kind of yeah. stresses are you hearing about here at the local level? Like populations going up, right? But we're, the housing's yeah. not keeping up. Yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, municipal governments they can only control so much, right? I mean, a lot of housing does come down to them because they make decisions about land use, what kinds of buildings can be built where how big, how dense, but you had some of the councillors, there was a councillor, a couple of councillors from the township of Langley, which is one of the fastest growing municipalities in BC, Uh, I think grew by 13% between the last two census periods, and she said they're approving hundreds, they're approving thousands of new homes, They're, they're trying to do their part at the municipal level, but she's asking these provincial cabinet ministers, what guarantees will there be that there's enough hospitals to keep pace with that population growth, that there's enough schools? She says, yeah. you know, the city can't build schools. The city needs the province to fund these school construction. And she said she figures they're going to need a new school every couple of weeks to keep pace with their population growth. Um, they've got so many young families moving there, which is what they want. But she's asking, you know, if we're doing our part at the city level. What is the province? What guarantees do we have that the province is going to do its part to uh, fund the infrastructure that we need to, to help all the, to serve all of these new people. Yeah, that's a good question. Did she get an uh, Did she get any answer on it or just spin? Well, yeah, I think so. The uh, BC's housing minister Ravi Kalan gave the answer that he's given. Uh, well, a comment that he's made a few times previously, um, which is an interesting one. He said that he has been uh, calling both publicly and in private conversations, pushing his federal counterparts to tie. Uh, different kinds of funding, including house, you know, funding for affordable housing, but also kinds of infrastructure, uh, to immigration targets. So the federal yeah. government obviously is responsible for setting immigration targets. The feds have set uh, you know, a record 
target of, uh, I think, 500,000 new Canadians to arrive uh, by 2025. uh, So we're setting higher and higher immigration targets. Uh, Minister Callan said he didn't disagree with that. He thinks we need immigration. You know, we've got an aging population. And as more and more people retire, we need the young people coming into the workforce. And our population would be aging without this influx of younger people, skilled immigrants, people coming from around the world. So he didn't disagree with the immigration targets. But he said B.C. and, you know, especially certain parts of B.C. are going to see a lot of those immigrants, more like a disproportionate number of of those immigrants compared to our population. Um, so he would like to see a commensurate level of funding coming from the federal government uh, to help provincial and municipal governments yeah. deal with, uh, accommodate those new immigrants. Uh, it's always kind of immigrants as well as the existing populations. It's like uh, a little past the buck, right? Like you got the municipalities sure. looking at the province. We need you to yep. spend more. And then the province yep. looks at the feds. No, we need you to spend more. <laughs> Everyone's They're asking always, you the other side. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, okay. Exactly. That's what it all seems like. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Here's another thing I was wondering. I wonder if you picked up on this at all in your conversations this week with local leaders, because I've talked to a lot of mayors, councillors who say, like, like they were saying in the township of Langley to you there, that look, we're working flat out here to approve more housing and get more stuff built, get more homes built where people can live, and yet you've got senior levels of government continuing to point the finger at the municipality, saying you're not doing enough. And if you don't start approving more housing starts, we're going to punish you. So Pierre Polyev, for example, the federal conservative mm. leader, let me play a clip here for you. This is Polyev speaking this week, outlining his housing plan to force municipalities to build more housing or, or else it's going to cost them. Here's what he had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. I'll bring in a mathematical formula that gives... more funding to a municipality if they beat their housing, home building targets by 1%. If they miss their target by 1%, they'll get 1% less money. I will require they build, that they permit 15% more homes per year or they will lose their money. Okay, so he wants 15% more every year or they will be financially penalized. You know, it's interesting because you've heard David Eby kind of make similar threats to mm. put more pressure on I me. Mean, what did you hear from municipalities? Are, are they do they think like they're doing enough? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges is municipalities. You know, as I mentioned earlier, obviously they make decisions around land use, they make decisions about these housing approvals, but there's a lot of stuff they can't control, and so uh, and it's something that we hear about in the city of Vancouver a lot, and I think other municipalities as well is that they they can approve however many units of housing they want. It, it, that's not necessarily a guarantee that those units will get built, right? So every year, the number of approvals and the number of completions, it varies widely. And in this, yeah. in this environment, with the cost of construction rising so much and interest rates, materials, labor, it's a challenging market to make certain, to make any kind of project work. I mean, you look at the, recent massive cost increase for the Surrey Hospital. Right. Uh, all kinds of construction projects are getting more and more expensive. Anyone in the private sector or the public sector will tell you that. So a, a project, you know, an apartment building, whether it's eight units or five, 400 units, a big project, any kind of rental housing, particularly the margin, margins are pretty tight. So a lot of builders are saying, you know, if just because something gets approved this year doesn't mean we're going to break ground next year or the year after that, it may never get built. 
And so that's one of the challenges that municipalities are dealing with. They say, we can approve all we want. There's no guarantee it gets built. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I'm speaking to Dan Fomano, city columnist at the Vancouver Sun. How about Airbnb and other short-term rentals? We hear a lot about this. There's a brand new report out this week. There's like 28,000 Airbnbs in, in British Columbia right now. A lot of concern that that is displacing uh, permanent rentals for, for BC residents, homeowners renting their place out on Airbnb instead of renting them to, to actual people living here. You hear about that this week? Oh yeah, definitely. That was um, another subject that came up at UBCM. It was it, it was interesting because I don't remember that being a huge issue even just last year at UBCM. At last year's UBCM, definitely housing was a big problem, and we heard about a lot of common challenges from healthcare to whatever. Um, a lot of challenges that continue to be challenges, but Airbnb and short term rentals like that seem to have, for whatever reason, become such a concern for local governments. And obviously, these services have been around for a number of years now. Um, but I guess they've kind of come roaring back after, you know, the COVID pandemic has kind of subsided uh, to some degree. And so people are traveling more. And for whatever reason, um, concerns around short-term rentals have really escalated in the last year or two. And it was a common uh, topic of discussion. The housing minister, again, Ravi Kalon, he had a special little scrum with reporters uh, just to talk about short-term rentals, and he has promised that his government is going to be bringing in new legislation, provincial legislation, this fall to try to help municipalities deal with this. Because previously, up until yeah. now, it was up, sort of up to individual municipalities for how they were going to deal with short-term rentals. Uh, the city of Vancouver, I believe, was one of the first in North America to sort of set these kinds of regulations, but they were kind of doing it on their own. Now the province is kind of stepping in, and they're going to be creating some new legislation. The minister wouldn't give any uh, hints or previews of what that legis- legislation might look like, but he said it's coming this fall. Yeah. Yeah, okay, we're following that one closely. Dan, lots going on in this file. Thank you for taking the time today. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's talk Airbnb now. Super popular in British Columbia. Take a look at the number of Airbnb listings in the province. Over 28,000 listings on Airbnb in BC. Now that has gone up a lot. Brand new study just out from McGill University estimates that is a a nearly 18% increase in one year. 18% increase in the number of Airbnb listings in the province what kind of impact is this having on the rental market in british columbia this study concludes that a lot of homeowners putting their places up on airbnb instead of renting them out to permanent residents in the province they say this is reducing the number of rental units available and also driving up rents the report says that this may have increased rents by 20% because of the number of rentals taken off the market and put up on Airbnb. Got Torben Wyatt standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to David Walksmith here from McGill University. He's the lead author in this study. Maybe as much as 20% of all the increases in rent in the province can be explained by the growth of short-term rentals during that time period. Okay, so he says the 20% increase in rent hikes. Is Airbnb to blame here? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Torben Weiditz. Torben is with Fair B&B. Torben is an urban geography, he's the urban geographer 
and he's with Fair B&B, which is a national coalition calling for fair rules and regulations on short-term rentals. Torben, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having us. What, what do you think of this report? Yeah, it, it, it confirms what we sort of knew and expected, but it is uh, very important because it's the first report in Canada that actually quantifies, um, you know, in 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 uh, in dollar amounts, in dollar figures, the amount of money that tenants have to pay extra because of the existence of so-called commercial short-term rentals in their communities. Okay, so what? Explain to me what happens here. Like when when a unit goes up on Airbnb, especially if it's up there full time. And it's does that displace that unit would normally be rented out to a permanent resident here of the province? Is that the problem? That is correct. Yeah. So uh, what uh, Dr. Waxmith has done in his study, he has looked at all the short-term rental listings in the province, and then at specifically zeroed in on those that uh, are frequently rented entire homes, meaning those are units that have been rented for more than 183 days a year and are available. Uh, all year round and these places can be set with with you know fairly confidently have been removed from the housing market and in the summer of you know this summer 2023 um almost 17,000 entire homes have been removed and turned into quasi hotel inventory for platforms like Airbnb um and that obviously has a negative impact on folks um you know surrounding these Airbnbs but also in terms of the housing market and price increases, um, has an impact on people's rent. Yeah, and speaking of that, this report says that the rent increases in British Columbia, at least 20% of those rent hikes can be blamed on this. Does that does that add up to you? Like, is, is this driving yeah, up rents? That, that is exactly it. I mean, and the, the, the 20%, this is for the time period of 2017 to 2019, um, we saw a dip in short-term rental activity during the pandemic. But then in 2022, we have been witnessing a resurgence of, you know, Airbnb activity across BC. And um, the contribution that has had on rents is actually higher than 20. It's at 28.1%. So, you know, if we don't get a handle on the situation, you know, it can be expected that we see more housing loss, like units that have been planned, approved, and built as residential homes being turned into hotel inventory um, to the detriment of, of tenants and renters across the province. Yeah. Yeah. When you describe it as basically these are turning into quasi hotels, like what do you mean? Like they're they're being rented out almost basically permanently on Airbnb. So they're effectively like a like a yes. hotel room. So what the what the study found is that there is a a small minority of hosts um, on Airbnb's platform that have access to and control the vast majority of the inventory and that the top 20% of hosts are responsible for over 50% of Airbnb's revenue and the top 1% of over 20. So there's a wow. there's a concentration at the top end where people buy up, lease up or otherwise acquire housing stock that has been planned, approved and built as residential and they turn it into full-time dedicated short-term rental inventory to house guests and tourists. Um, so that's essentially what this study has shown. Um, and then on top of that, been able to quantify what that means in terms of rising housing costs. Speaking of Torben, why did is Airbnb driving up rents in British Columbia, displacing rental housing in the province? Lots of calls for the government to take action here. Let's listen to the leader of the BC Green Party here, Sonia Furstenau, speaking this week. Have a listen. When we have 
evidence and data like this, then what we need is for government to act. Okay, so she's calling on the government to take action, crack down. Now, the B.C. government says there is something coming. They are planning some sort of a response here. But what do you, Torben, what do you think they should do? Well, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. I think the government already signaled in their housing mandate letter of 2022 that they want to take a province-wide approach to tackling short-term rentals. And what we're saying is that you know, not every municipality in British Columbia has the resources that Vancouver has to establish a, uh, a, a fairly uh, effective regulatory system. So the province can step in and uh, help municipalities across the province by um, setting up a, a, a registry, uh, which means that if we or you and I want to rent out our place on Airbnb, we would have to register with the province we would have to show that the property that we want to register is our own home, our own principal residence, and then um, force platforms like Airbnb to only advertise and profit from um, properties that have a valid province-wide registration number attached to them. And by doing so, we would ensure that only principal residences uh, will be rented on platforms, which means that it allows people like you and my, me to rent out our own home when we're gone on vacation, but we would not be able to buy up or lease up housing stock to turn it into dedicated yeah. short-term rental inventory. What do you think about what New York City did? And they recently brought in some of the strictest regulations on short-term rentals that I've seen and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it includes that you are not allowed to rent out your place on Airbnb for less than 30 days, which basically takes away a ton of the market here for people who are just going on a vacay or a visit. And also that the owner of the property must be present while an Airbnb guest is in the home. And we've seen basically thousands of airbnb listings almost disappear practically overnight in new york city right yeah that's right and i think uh, i would say that desperate times uh, sometimes need desperate measures and uh, you know if you are suffering from a housing crisis and there's no housing available new york city's measures are uh, very effective because it basically returns uh, back to what we know as bed and breakfasts uh, people yeah. renting out a place in their home and they are present in the property um, and it, it was successful in that it removed almost 50% of Airbnb's, rev, uh, uh, Airbnb's inventory, making it available to long-term tenants in the city. I'm not so sure whether um, you cannot rent it out for less than 28 days, um, but certainly you're correct that uh, the owner and operator has to be present, which is yeah. something that has not been done in Canada yet. Yeah. What do you say to the argument, and I know we will hear this, we'll open up the phone lines here after the break, and I know I will probably hear from someone who will say, look, this is my home, I, I own this property, and the government should keep their nose out of it. If I want to rent it out short term, I should be allowed to do this. This is a free country. What do you say to that argument? I mean, simply like people still can. Um, if you want to rent out your own home, you can still rent it on, on platforms short term. Um, but people cannot rent investment properties short term. And to that, I would say that um, what we have seen, absentee landlords holding large inventories of investment properties um, have been contributing to not only the housing crisis, but also to a lot of neighborhood disruptions. Everyone loves Airbnb when they're on vacation, um, but no one wants to have a dedicated full-time 
quasi hotel next door to them or, you know, above their unit in a condo or wherever, because it really infringes on other people's ability to enjoy their own property. Um, and that's a big problem. So I think we have zoning in place for good reasons. We're not allowed to build a factory. We're not about allowed to uh, introduce uh, disruptive uses into residential neighborhoods. And hotel use is one of these uses that are allowed in certain areas for a good yeah. reason. So I would say, you know, like you, they can still rent it out to a long-term tenant and make a killing in this market. Urban, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Let's get up to date here on the writer's strike here that has shut down so many film and TV productions, not only in Hollywood, but right here in British Columbia as well. This is a huge employer. It's a big industry here in B.C. Uh, This strike has been uh, a source of great disruption here. Now, the good news is that the two sides are meeting again today for further contract talks. This is after marathon negotiations uh, have been going on this week in an effort to end this standoff, which has gone on for 150 days now. So this is the good news is that maybe, maybe there's a glimmer of hope that they can get a deal here. Got Dana G standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this. Now, this is uh, actor Brian Cranston, of course, immortalized forever as Walter White on Breaking Bad. Here he is speaking on the picket line about what needs to be in a in a settlement, in a deal, especially with the threat of artificial intelligence in filmmaking and TV. Have a listen to this. Does the issue of AI raise any concerns for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, never before... Uh, Will the, this contract, can you believe this? This contract will have a sentence in there that states actors must be human beings. That's, this is mind-boggling, but that's what it will say. And the same thing with the Writers Guild contract. Must be written by a human being. We've never had to imagine that before, but that's here right now. It's possible of happening right now. And we have to step in and say, you are dehumanizing the workforce. And it, it cannot continue. That's actor Brian Cranston there on the ongoing strike in Hollywood. Let's check in with Dana G now, entertainment and culture columnist for the Vancouver Sun and the province newspaper. Dana, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you jumping in here. What is the latest you're hearing from? Because it sounds like there's a little bit of optimism here. Can I just make a quick comment, though? I love yeah. that that he said there has to be a line that the actors and writers have to be human beings. I, I imagine that the people on the creative side would want the studio bosses to have to be human beings. Because that uh, <laughs> yeah. seems to be, that was, that's the first thing that popped in my head. I'm just being cheeky, I know, but yeah. Um, you know, I wish I had a bunch of things to tell you, but this has been one of these really strange stories in that nobody really knows anything like the only good news as you said in the lead-in was you know them being at the table and by being at the table it's been the wga and not just representatives for the studio bosses but the studio bosses meaning you know warner brothers uh disney's bob Iger, david zaslav like all four of them big names right the big bosses 
who a lot of people, um, you know, take exception to because they're the ones who are making, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, but they've been at these uh, negotiations the last three days. So that's sort of, I guess, if you were a gambling person, means that they're ready to actually get something done. What they're getting yeah, done. Yeah, it sure um, sounds that way. Yeah. But the leaks have been, this has been pretty airtight, which is weird for Hollywood, right? You know, people hire publicists just to leak things. So um, it's been pretty airtight. Uh what I can tell you, though, is, yeah, great. WGA sounds like they're getting closer. You know, they were, I think you mentioned that they were uh, long yesterday, like about 10 or 12 hours negotiating again today. You know, if the writers sign, that's all wahoo, but it won't change anything until the SAG after uh, the other strike gets settled, right? I mean, you can have the WGA guys go back to work, people go back to work, you know, so that means maybe some daytime talk shows or even like, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers, those guys can come back. You know, they won't have guests. They won't have, you know, Tom Hanks dropping by, but they'll have writers. So it's it's one of those things, right? It's like the left hand has to meet the right hand and before the business actually gets back to business. Yeah, because there's two disputes going on simultaneously, right? You've got the writers, the writers' strike, and then SAG after, as you mentioned there, that's the actors' union, correct? Yeah, and they share obviously similar um, complaints and um, want similar things added, like the AI being the big one, the streaming residuals, you know, getting paid. Uh, but there's obviously some minutia between them on different things. But like I said, until the writers come back, I mean, here in, in BC, which you mentioned, obviously a huge industry here, it's almost $4 billion a year, TV and film production, and about 80,000 people at any given time working. Um, wow. Once that happens, uh, and they say the actors do come back, well, it doesn't mean the next day the um, flip gets switched on and things start shooting again, because you have to remember, unless people had scripts ready to go, that yep. they're willing to stick to can they start shooting um also you have to you know it's not it as much as it's magic you know the making of movies and tv it's not magic because you have to set things up you have to get crews so you know a couple people i've talked to in the industry that obviously don't want to say things out loud because you know during strike negotiations etc said you know looking at early uh new year even if everything gets settled in within the next month an early new year start hopefully be just because of content and getting you know getting prepared and here right now in bc you know people some things are shooting i am i know people who are working but they're working on a couple of small canadian productions and a few hallmark films and they're hurting because they can't bring in you know american actors who are usually the leads for those so it's I like I said, I wish I had more exciting things to tell you, but it's sort of where we are. Yeah, well, there there's some hopeful signs there. At least they're talking. That's the main thing. And when you get the big shots like the CEOs at the table, I think that's an encouraging sign. Speaking to Dana G about the ongoing writers and actors strike that has shut down a lot of productions in British Columbia. And this is the reason why I think it's important to keep an eye on this is because this is a huge employer. In BC, yeah. like those numbers that you mentioned, I'm not sure everyone realizes just how big this is. Like 80,000 workers, wow, yeah. multi-billion dollar sector. How how has this affected people? Like a ton of people, are they just out of work? Are they, have they gone back to working in waiter jobs? What's going on there? It's funny, you know, you and I talked, I guess, a couple months ago when I wrote that story about the sort of, you know, tertiary, for lack of a better term, you know, the, the, peop the locations managers, the lighting guys uh, that, you know, it's, like a few little gigs, commercials, people were still able to shoot commercials, right? Non-union yep. commercials. 
Uh, local actors here, if there were scripts that were local, were able to work because of that extended contract that the UBCP um, ACTRA set up for a year here. Uh, no, I mean, I know a couple of people that work in hair and makeup and they've gone back to work in salons. Yeah. Uh, so it all depends on where you're at and where you're working. And, and, you know, crews have a hierarchy as well, like everything else. So, you know, last hired, first fired sort of stuff, I think happens. So, you know, everybody, and, and some of the companies I've, I've spoke to earlier for that story, you know, did have a bit of a cushion. They were able to able to keep some people on or, you know, get them through it. But, hey, I don't know if you've been listening to the podcast called uh, uh, Force Something Five. I can't remember, sorry. But it's like all the big late-night talk show hosts, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert. They're doing this uh, podcast where they've got sponsors like Ryan Reynolds, you know, Mint Mobile and all this, and all the money they're going to be giving to their staff. Okay. So. There's fundraising, it's fundraising, like guys like Seth MacFarlane, you know, family guy, Seth MacFarlane, he's given yeah. $5 million to the entertainment community fund. So there's all this, that sort of stuff that's sort of happening here and there, you know, people are trying to help, you know, just to make sure when they go back to work, they actually have staff. That's yeah. the other thing. Right? Yeah. You know? Hey, la last question for you, Dana, uh, for a lot of people may think of this industry and they think like, well, no, we're talking about some pampered actors that already make a lot of money. Now, like, yeah, this industry employs so many people behind the scenes that are not making big bucks at all. I mean, you mentioned hairdressers, but it's a very kind of diversified workforce, right? I mean, there's tons of people doing all kinds of different things on these shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's carpenters, there's plumbers, yeah. there's health safety, there's, I mean, intimacy coordinators, uh. you know? And I think... Uh, George Clooney said the other day when he was being interviewed, you know, there's like a hundred in SAG, there's 160,000 actors. Well, not all of them are getting George Clooney money. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. at the end of the day, there's only a handful of those people that are in that, you know, and anybody that can make a, a, a living off being a working actor, it's like the rest of us. It's a working job. Right. Yeah. And same all the other trades or whatever you call the guys who drive the people around that have to make the things, you know, sure. it's really multi-leveled and i think people need to look at it that way and just not jump to that you know these rich actors want more money it has nothing really to do with that at the end of the day it has to do with an industry and that an industry takes a lot of people so right. that's what okay it's let's hope they get a deal soon dana thank you for coming on yeah no worries mike have a great day Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.